Hello and welcome to the Translation Company Talk, a weekly podcast show focusing on translation services and the language industry. The Translation Company Talk covers topics of interest for professionals engaged in the business of translation, localization, transcription, interpreting, and language technology. The Translation Company Talk is sponsored by YYZ Translations. Your host is Sultan Ghaznawi with today's episode. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Translation Company Talk podcast show. I'm your host, Sultan Ghaznawi. Today, I'm excited to be discussing an important topic within the mergers and acquisitions area of our industry. I have invited Paul Doherty once again on this podcast to talk about operational scalability in the context of mergers and acquisitions. As you're aware, acquisitions are executed for expanding sales and operations footprint or to develop regional presence outside the boundaries of the company that is acquiring the target. We will talk about what works and what are the best ways to actually scale operations up leveraging the strengths of both parties in a deal. During his career, Paul Doherty has set up two language service companies, the Language Technology Center, which became a $25 million business merged into Xerox Language Services and Multilingual Technology Limited, which he sold to Berlitz during the dot-com era. Since then, Paul has been Managing Director of UK, German, Polish and Slovakian companies for Berlitz, Bound and Linebridge. He has led European sales for Linebridge and SDL and has worked as a strategic consultant to Moravia. Paul is Director of Strategy Management Consultants Limited, helping companies to implement transformative change. Some of the transformative change Paul has been involved in are company mergers and acquisitions, in particular how to make the mergers work and how to scale up operations. Why is it that most mergers fail to deliver their promised value? What is the secret to successful mergers? Let's cover those topics in today's podcast. Paul, welcome back to the Translation Company Talk. Uh, nice to be here again, Sultan. I can't wait to catch up with you, Paul. Uh, what have you been up to lately? Well, the good news is uh, I've been delivering results for customers and I've also been marketing my services. Uh, so uh, during the first lockdown last year, mm-hmm. um, the work dried up because of COVID. And I took some guidance from a Canadian marketing company and they gave me three good pieces of advice. They told me to decide who my ideal customer is. They asked me to choose one speciality and only one speciality, which I'll focus on. Um, nobody likes a generalist, apparently. And they recommended I stop selling my time and start selling my knowledge. So after some thought, I decided that my ideal customer is an owner or CEO of a small to medium localization company who wants to buy another company or wants to sell their own company. So therefore, my chosen speciality is company mergers. That is making the merger work after the contract is signed. And I turned this service into a product called the Company Merger Protocol which is made up of three parts. Part one is a pre-deal service called the Merger Readiness Report, where I look at the seven most common pitfalls of company mergers and prepare a plan to minimize their impact. Part two is a post-deal service called the Merger Plan Implementation, and that's where I guide the teams through the agreed merger plan to deliver the expected value of the merger. Part three is a post-implementation service called the Post-Merger Reset, which looks at the lessons learned from the merger and applies these lessons to the new merged company for the next three years. So I deliver this 
protocol in whole or in part for a fixed price per product. And I must say, the advice I got was very good because I've generated much more interest from being more niche than from trying to be many things to many customers. That's good to know. Uh, so when you put in the right effort, you got the right results. Correct. Tell me a little bit more. Now you've identified the persona of uh, who your end clients should be. Uh, before we get into the main topic of the discussion, tell me like how this this niche discovery helped you and, and what was involved in doing all of that? How, what type of mindset did you go into in order to identify who your end clients would be? Well, there was a, a couple of things I had to focus on. It's like there's lots of things I've been involved in you know, and there's lots of areas I can give advice on sales, account management, operational processes, process improvement. But the thing that I have really enjoyed being involved in when they're done well is company mergers. I've been through lots of company mergers myself. I had my own company, which right. I sold to Berlitz. It had to be, you know, so that was, I had to do that without any help at all. And um, it went well, but it was very, very tough. I wish I'd had some external help when I did that. And uh, the next one was when Bowen bought Berlitz and they had a process and those guys did it so professionally. And then, you know, uh, Limebridge bought Bowen and have been through, SDL bought lots of companies. And and I've also worked with a lot of the customers I've worked since becoming a consultant. Those companies I've worked with, many of them have acquired companies or been acquired. And some of them have done it well, but many of them, haven't and it wasn't because they were they were bad companies or bad leaders it's just they didn't they they made several mistakes which i'm going to talk about but basically the focus was all on buying the company and very little focus on what to do with the company once they got it so i decided these things are big strategic changes company mergers are big strategic people spend money on them and they normally go wrong but I've seen them I know how to to make them go right so I thought that would be fun and um, normally since I decided that CEOs and business owners were, were my ideal customer then that gives me a reason to talk to those people because if they're interested in selling their own company or buying another company for rapid growth then they want to do it well and I can tell them how to avoid these common pitfalls. So once you get the clarity on the customer and you you have the focus on what it is you want to sell, then that makes your messaging very clear. It allows you then to focus and think about who you're talking to, what they might want to hear, and it allows you to create content, say little videos about some of the problems they might face. And if they watch those videos, then they should learn something they didn't know and they should think, oh, this guy, Doherty, he knows what he's talking about. So that's how it's helped me. Well, uh, that's a nice segue to uh, to get the conversation started. So let's dive right into um, our subject today. We will talk about operational scalability in the context of mergers and acquisitions. Uh, please provide a backgrounder on this topic. What is it? Why is it important? Well, the, the background to the topic is the fact that company mergers present owners with problems and opportunities. And one of the problems is the realization that the processes and behaviors which have successfully got the company to its current position are not robust enough to get the merged companies to the next level. Uh, So this problem is given different labels. People talk about scalability, adaptability, flexibility, innovation, maturity levels. But if, if we talk about 
scalability, what does it mean? So scalability means you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Each time you get a new challenge, it means your processes are robust enough to handle larger volumes, tighter deadlines, and more languages without collapsing. So it means your processes are fit for purpose, and not just your production process, processes, your sales processes, how you communicate, how you handle complaints, how you develop your employees, all those processes. And so the problems of scalability comes down to the same thing. We have to do something different, and that something different is the opportunity. I spoke recently with my friend Christophe Juani on, on successful acquisitions of language companies. Tell me, why does a company want to acquire another company in the first place? Well, the short answer is rapid growth, because done right, growth by acquisition beats the pants off growth by other means. Organically. Organically, yeah. I mean, it can be done. Um, um, Moravia grew from, it grew to 100 million euros organically. It it took the best part of 20 years. So, I mean, you can do it. And they did a great job of doing it. But if you want to get to 100 million euros in a shorter time frame than 20 years, then acquisition is a great way to go. But it has to be done right. So in the beginning, it always sounds really good. You know, it's going to be a strategic merger that leverages the best of two companies, promises growth and opportunity, or the acquisitions for a new technology to produce breakthrough performance, or it's a global joint venture that opens up new markets. These are typically the reasons. But the merger has to be done right to realize the desired value. And unfortunately, 85% of mergers are not done right. And the reason is a lack of post-deal planning. There's normally plenty of pre-deal due diligence, but post-deal transition is seen as a mere detail, which can easily be handled further down the organization. So the executive team, flushed with confidence from signing the new deal, encouraged by glowing press releases, they send their anxious, upset, confused organization into a transition minefield with no map and no clue, and the result is a mess. But Disasters happen to other companies, right? Right. <laughs> so it's always, it's it always happens to somebody, but it actually happens to eighty-five percent. So, but despite this huge failure rate, the huge failure rate of company mergers, most acquirers are repeat offenders, and not because they enjoy pain, but because they're under tremendous pressure to grow. And as I said, mergers done well are an excellent way to rapid growth. But I have to say, Sultan, uh, that I'm aware that sometimes. I think I sound too negative when I talk about the failure rate of company mergers. It sounds like I'm saying you're all doomed. But, you know, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying 85% of you are all doomed. There's a difference. If if they don't follow the right uh, procedures. procedures, Yeah. So uh, they're not all doomed. But statistically, if you do make the same mistakes, if you don't plan for post-merger, then it's not going to go very well. Assuming the acquisition is to increase production, which is, you know, sometimes the case, or sales footprint for that matter, what mindset is the buyer going into this deal with? Uh, what are the assumptions, Paul? The mindset of most buyers is buying another company is hard work, but merging the newly acquired company is a simple operational detail, and that assumption is a recipe for disaster. What what gives rise to that assumption? What gives rise to that assumption? I did a little video on this, you know. Um, executives love the chase, but 
they, but they don't like the catch. So I talk about, you know, dogs, dogs chasing a car. They don't know what they're going to do when they catch the car, but they love the chase. And executives too, some, they love the idea of, you know, winning and buying a new company, beating off the competition, getting into a new market. That The big thrill of growing the company besides, they love that kind of thing. It's kind of, it's got, they can see a beginning and they can see an end and it's kind of something they can get their teeth stuck into. Whereas merging a company is kind of like a marriage. It's a long-term project. It's full of, you have to bring people along with you. You have to be very diplomatic. You have to act, you have to be very brutal sometimes as well, but you have to have a plan and you have to know what happens. You have to have, you have to have, know what happens when things go wrong because things will go wrong. So you have to have a plan for all these things. And it's, executives kind of like, they get bored by that kind of thing. (laughs) They, They get bored. They like the short term, quick win into battle, win the battle and get out. So it's it's a kind of executive culture problem, right? I'm not saying this is all executives, but is is you know I've thought about it, and I think that's what they they love the chase, but they don't know they don't like the catch. They don't really know what to do with the company when they got it. Apart from saying, "Oh, this is easy stuff. We've done the big difficult thing. You know, we've brought we've brought home the the wild boar. You guys can gut it and cook it." But they're handing it over to people who don't know how to do that, you know. Um, Does so, this mean uh, getting in, getting outside your comfort zone and thinking about uh, what can, you know, go negatively against you and, and prepare for that? Because that's something that makes people uncomfortable and probably the reason why a lot of these leadership uh, type minds don't don't think about risks and, and, and what could potentially go wrong. Yeah, the danger is when you point out from experience, from loads and loads of experience, from other people, uh, from surveys that have been done by Cooper and K- KPMG, the things that go wrong, there's a common set of problems. And if sometimes the danger is when you mention these problems and the statistics and how they go wrong, you come across as being negative. People want to hear why this is going to go great, why this is the best idea that's ever, why buying this company is great. And it might be a great idea to buy the company, but buying the company is the easy bit. Actually making the merger work and delivering the value that drove the acquisition in the first place, that's the difficult bit. It's not impossible. You need to have a plan, but most uh, people don't plan for it. Or else they come up with a plan and they think it's going to happen by itself. Some companies have a great plan. I, I won't mention any names, so I can think of, I've been, I've looked at some companies' plans and I thought they did a fantastic job in coming up with the plan, but then expected that plan to happen by itself. Nobody was given responsibility for making the plan happen. There was very little communication around the plan. It was it was a great plan, but nobody owned it, and therefore it didn't happen. Now, let's say you have reached a certain threshold of production, and now you want to reach the next level. Does your strategy that helped you reach the current state remain valid to guide you to the next level? It might, and it might not. Some smaller, medium-sized companies have very robust processes, but many do not. And the ones that don't have robust processes... They're well aware of the problem and they've been living with the consequences for some time. So the acquisition of a new company is an excellent opportunity to deal with these problems instead of carrying them over to the newly merged company. 
And as the expansion happens, Paul, uh, due to a merger or let's say organically, what is supposed to change and what is supposed to stay the same? Well, uh, the question of what changes and what stays the same has to be decided by what drives the promised value of the merger. So I'll give you, I'll tell you a little story. I, I attended a seminar once in London right. and there was a speaker who was part of the British eight-man rowing team, which won Olympic gold in Sydney in 2000. His story, I thought, illustrated nicely how to engage an organisation and decide on what changes and what stays the same. So his story was that uh, this rowing team came seventh, seventh in the 1998 World Championships. That was out of eight teams, they came second last. Um, so they, the, the Great Britain rowing team decided they would have to have a complete rethink if they were going to win, achieve their stated goal of winning Olympic gold in the Sydney Olympics in two years' time, in 2000. So they challenged everything they did and didn't do in order to achieve their goal of winning Olympic gold. And that led to heated debates about what was the right thing to do. But when things risk getting too heated, the question they asked each other was, will it make the boat go faster? And they applied that question to decisions about training, diet, sleep and other activities. So, for example, they decided they would not attend the Olympic opening ceremony because they reckoned that standing in a packed arena in the heat for up to seven hours would not make their boat go faster. So they watched the opening event on TV in their hotel room. And so because of this focus on only doing things that would make the boat go faster, they went on to win the Olympic gold beating the host nation Australia who took silver. So this is the kind of focus you need in deciding what has to change when you merge two companies. And the question has to be, you know, what are the value drivers? What are the, why are you making this deal? What's the value you want to achieve? And then for everything you want to change or leave it as it is, it's going to be, will it deliver the promised value of the merger more quickly or not? Will it increase, and increase the chances of success or not. And if you look at uh, decisions with that in mind, then you've got more chance of making the right decision. People plan for growth and have all kinds of contingencies in place, but what has your experience been and how often they work? Well, my experience, as I mentioned earlier, is that people are good at making plans, but right. not very good at implementing the plans. They believe that if they develop a great plan, they have a great vision for the future, that everybody's just going to get behind that and make it happen. That's an incredibly naive belief. Assumption, I would say. Yep, absolutely naive, but that's that's common. That's a common error. Tell me what is involved in, in reviewing your processes. You have to uh, take a look at where you are before you decide where to go. Is there a template for scaling to the next level? Yes, there is. Uh, I mentioned earlier that business mergers present owners with problems and opportunities, and how to scale operations is one of the problems. Doing things differently is one of the opportunities. So discovering the something different is the key to unlocking the riches of the merger. The temptation, though, is to go straight into prescriptive mode. We, the management, know what needs to be done, and we're going to tell you what you have to do differently. That's a typical leadership response. And the prescription might be right or it might be wrong, but either way, it won't be effective because it won't get lasting support from the organization because people don't like being told what to do. I can understand, you know, the temptation for the executive team or the leadership team to prescribe because there are many known problems which both merging companies will have been living with for some time and they believe correctly 
that the merger will be a great opportunity to solve these problems. But big change like a company merger is a transition and transitions are a journey. You have to go through that journey. So I, I read a book once called Managing Transitions by William Bridges. It's an excellent little book. And I recommend it. In that book, he says transitions are a journey involving three stages. So the first stage is ending something, losing something, letting go. So letting go of the past or what was. And then the second stage is a kind of no man's land, a neutral zone. Nobody knows what the future is going to be like. So you have to live with uncertainty. And the third stage is a new beginning, the future stage, the transitions over and the new normal begins. Right. But the temptation for many people is just to ignore step one entirely forget about the past right it's over rush through step two nobody likes uncertainty let's get straight to step three the new beginning as quickly as possible but all three steps are important and they have to be given their own time so in the book he says transition begins with an ending letting go of something and it finishes with the beginning a new start so to do it properly, you have to acknowledge the old ways and identities which people had is important to them. So if you merge two companies, that's, you know, it it causes a bit of an identity crisis. And uh, you have to accommodate that sense of loss in a professional way. And then once people realize that, you know, they, there's no going back to the past, some people won't accept that, they'll leave. But, but the ones who are there, then you've got to realize that there's no instant getting to the future state. People want to instantly get the future state. But this neutral zone is the real creative zone because it's in that zone that you can say, how are we going to change? How are we going to make this merger work for the future? It's then during that period of uncertainty that people can really look at problems, come up with solutions. You can get people working together if you're in a transition rather than competing against each other, which is the normal. Um, and at the end of that, once you go through that, you can then choose the best ideas and apply them, and that will get you to your, your future uh, state. So um, the, the, the problems of telling people what to do uh, can be fixed during this uh, neutral zone, the creative zone. Instead of telling people what to do, you can use a tried and tested change process called ADCAR. There are lots of other processes, but this is one which I've used successfully in the past and, and the present. So ADCAR stands for Awareness, Desire, Knowledge, Ability and Reinforcement. So awareness is understanding the need for change. Desire is wanting to support and participate in change. Knowledge is what has to change. Ability is having the resources and the skills to make the change happen. And reinforcement is systems, reporting, communication, and rewards to sustain the, the change. And all five of these steps have to be ad addressed if lasting change is going to happen. If any step is missed, then change will not happen. So if people aren't aware of, of the need for change, then they'll get confused, right? They'll say, why do we have to do this? What's wrong with the way we've always done this? Right. And if there's, if there's no desire for change, if you don't explain to people what they call WIIFM, what's in it for me, if you don't explain to people what's in it for them, get them wanting to participate in the change, then you'll get resistance. If people don't know what has to change, then you'll get fear because people don't want to screw up and make mistakes. And if you don't give people the ability, the resources, especially time, this is so important, you're going to allocate time to making this change happen, then you get frustration. 
you expect me to make this change, but you're not giving me the, the, the resources I need to make it happen. And if there's no reinforcement, if management don't care, if there's no reporting on the success, if there's no focus on quick wins, then you know they'll, you get backsliding. People think, well, if it's not important to my manager, why should it be important to me? So, um, so I'd care how you can transition properly. So if you don't mind, I'll just go into a little bit more detail. Please. Not, yep. So, um, so awareness, I always like to start with the customer. So if you're talking about why do we need to change, start with the customer. So you review your customer complaints, the feedback from quarterly business reviews, post-project reviews. You can do a root cause analysis of the complaints and that will normally tell you whereabouts in the process did the failures occur? And that makes a focus on the processes rather than the people. So rather than slapping people on the head for being stupid, then you look at the process and say, how can we improve the process? So that's with external customers, with internal customers, you can survey the internal teams. Where are the common friction points between sales and ops or between the company and the customers? What do they think they should be doing more of or less of? What should their colleagues be doing more of or less of? What is stopping them from doing their job properly? If they could change just one thing, what would it be? And if you ask people this, you'll get lots of uh, problems will surface and lots of ideas for changing as well. Um, and you'll also get people thinking, oh, I'm being asked about <laughs> problems and I'm being asked about what I think the solution is instead of just being told what to do. You're they, giving them a sense of ownership. Absolutely. And the, and the ownership is a problem because here's the thing, when, when you go and survey people, when you ask, when you engage the organization and you get them involved and you ask them for ideas, now you can't implement all the ideas, but you can consider them all. And when you consider people's ideas, even if you don't implement them, whatever comes out of the process, they feel ownership for that because they feel they've been asked and people realize not ide all ideas can be implemented. But the fact that they've been asked genuinely and honestly for their opinions and their ideas, and especially if you do it in a workshop, and these workshops can all be done online now, and you have breakout sessions, you get great ideas. Even if people's ideas are adopted, they still support them. They feel ownership for that. So that's how you, you, you do the awareness with the desire, you know, how to get people over, you know, the, get involved in change. I always say, don't forget the past. You have to remind the teams if you're getting two companies together. They've normally been through a lot of changes themselves because unless a company started last week, they've gone through lots of changes already. So you remind them of the, you look at the history of the, the two companies and say, you guys have been through change before. How did you handle this change? Oh, you did that. You managed that really well, didn't you? So, so you know, it becomes, the whole idea is you had change in the past. You now got change now. So it's just a continuation it's of of a process you've already been through. It's a natural progression. If you look at if you look at the progression of companies, and I've got kind of diagrams to show, you know, from startups, you know, companies go through uh, startups. They get to a certain size where they sustain success, or else they find find out they have to realign, or else they're going to lose market share. The ones who don't, they might go through a crisis, and then if they don't go out of business, then they'll be back into a, a sustaining success. But so there's there's a site there's a circle of life for 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 companies, and it's 
it's helpful to let people see that they're just part of that circle. And what's happening, this new particular company merger is just another natural progression. And these guys have been through changes before and there's no reason why this shouldn't be good for them now. So you have then you have to look at the, so you've considered the past, you're looking at the present, then you focus on the promise of a brighter future. So you have to review the strategic goals of the merger. You know, why are you merging these two companies? Normally it's for, so that something good will happen. So you have to say, this is what success looks like. And uh, you have to also say, this is what failure will look like so we can avoid it. And then you map out the journey for the two companies to one merged company. So then you ask the teams how we can best make the journey. If we're going to do this successfully, what do we need to change? How will we make the necessary changes? And you will get great ideas for this. And as you said, you will get ownership for it as well. And out of that will come mm-hmm. knowledge a blueprint for change, what needs to change. And, you know, as I said, you can get all this out of workshops as well. And because all the options are on the table and and are discussed, then at the end, clarity can be reached. And with clarity, you get accountability. And with accountability, you get results. So then the next part is um, the ability. So the, the ability to make the change is change initiative teams small teams, three to five members with a sponsor. And, um, you know, they, how do you decide on what should be a change initiative? Then you have to be pretty brutal on it. It's the impact on the merger value and the chances of success. You know, just remember what I said about, will it make the boat go quicker? So this is it. What's the impact on the merger value, large or low? What's the chances of success, low or high? And then from that, you can get a a scatter plot diagram where you can see you know circle size by the impact then you get the kind of the the upper right hand quadrant which are the ones you should implement right. and then you'll get the the ones which have a big impact but are are difficult and they're the challenges then you get the ones which are, are easy to do but will have a lower impact and you should consider them and then they get the ones that have a lower impact and low chance of success and you just kill them off right so that's how you decide. And then you have these small initiative teams and they have to go and, you know, make the change happen. And that means it's an experiment. We're going to do that this way. We're going to change the process from this to this. And we're going to see if it delivers the results we're expecting. And at the end of that uh, short term, then you'll make a decision, either adopt it, it works great, so we're going to do it and roll it out, or we're going to adapt it, it works well, but it could work better, we're going to make some changes, or it doesn't work, it doesn't deliver at all, so we're going to abandon it and try something else. So that's the ability, and then reinforcement, you know, Mm -hmm. what gets measured gets managed, and what gets managed gets done. So you have to um, agree the measures and targets, you have to focus on quick wins, because people have to see that this stuff works quickly. And um, you need constant communication from the leadership team uh, to make it work. So if you do go through that process, change will happen. So that's it. That's the template for for change. It's a so, long answer, but it's a it's a detailed process. That's a good one, Paul. Thank you so much for sharing that. Processes are just words on paper, and uh, people are executing them. Basically, what is the role of training and and retraining here uh, when it comes to uh, improving processes and, and getting change implemented? Well, uh, I, I, I think processes should be more than just words on paper. They should, they should, processes should, should be in the form of a high level 
flowchart called the CIPOC and a detailed integrated flowchart where you can see the handoffs between different departments. And that way, if you, if you flowchart your processes, when things go wrong, like when you get a customer complaint or internal teams are blaming each other, you can look at the flowchart and decide where in the process the problem occurred. And that way, the process gets reviewed regularly and improved on a continuous basis. And from that, training and retraining the teams in the new or improved processes follows from these regular reviews. And restructuring due to acquisitions, uh, obviously, is common. And we just talked about that. Sometimes at the expense of great talent on both sides, how can one get into a merger, Paul, and, and make sure to maintain the talent value on both sides? Well, the first thing you have to say is that with mergers and acquisitions, you're going to lose some people and some of the people you lose will be good people. Some people will not be able to let go of the past and to embrace a new future. But you have to limit, dramatically limit the number of good people you lose. And you do that by doing a couple of things. First one is great communication. So if you're the buyer of a company, you're paying a substantial hidden premium the customers and the people. And if you know if you lose customers and you lose good people, then you're losing that um you're losing that premium. So the cost can be minimized by reducing gossip and rumor and speculation as rapidly as possible. And that requires proactive communication uh, to all the stakeholders on the post-deal issues that are most relevant to them. So most company merger communication is normally content-free. They're normally about making pronouncements, then connecting with people. They confuse talking with communicating. And most importantly, they fail to connect with the real needs of the employees and customers and suppliers and other stakeholders. So you have to find out the urgent early concerns of the stakeholders in the, the companies. Um, so, you know, good communication, it's a stabilizer. So if you don't communicate well, people don't stop talking. All the communication just goes underground and then the rumor mill starts. And before you know it, uh, your competitors are talking to your customers about the disaster going on inside your company. So you have to, commun good communication, which addresses people's concerns as a way to nip that in the bud. But more importantly than just communicating, um, all mergers and acquisitions, they require the support of the stakeholders. So good communication is a stabilizer. It keeps people focused and energized rather than being confused. Um, so, um, and I think most people um, misunderstand that part about communication. The communication during a, a merger is about securing stakeholder understanding and acceptance. It's about building support for the new business proposition, which is the company merger. Mm -hmm. And because these are the people who you need to buy into and deliver to make that uh, business proposition work. So that's one thing. Good communication right. uh, will help you maintain good people. Another thing you can do, which sounds a wee bit counterintuitive but uh, the other thing you can do to maximize your retention of good people is to resist the temptation to instantly publish an organization chart so company mergers are so disruptive and challenging and difficult that leaders are tempted to focus on things they can do easily like producing a shiny new organization chart and why not it's one 
thing off the to-do list, right? Tick, we've done that. But my advice would be resist the temptation. Because if you publish an organization chart right after the announcement, the merger and acquisition discussions, which should be about growth and market share and strategic advantage, that deteriorates into a struggle for power and authority and turf and who's going to be in charge and why did he get that role when I've been with the company for 10 years or I wasn't even interviewed for the for the position or I'm not working for that guy, I'm off. So that's what you'll get by taking off that easy thing, producing that organisation chart. So organisational decisions have profound implica implications for the productivity and the performance of the new organization and that impact extends well beyond who reports to who you know it leads to the breakup of existing work groups the creations of new work groups it, it causes changes in workflow and decision flow it has an overwhelming effect on behavior motivation and the ultimate capture of the shareholder value so you have to choose the time wisely when to announce the new organization so When's the right time? And I think the right time is when you've identified the changes which have to be made and seen the results of the change initiatives I talked about earlier. And that is when you know the shape of the future organization. So the change initiative teams should be populated with the people that you as the owner think are the or might be the future leaders and the role models. So you put them in the, the change initiative teams and you see how they perform. How have they participated in the change process, the ideas generation, leading the teams and the initiative implementation? Has their participation been crucial to the success of the initiatives? Have they led their teams with enthusiasm or have they been cynical? They kind of say, oh, never work. I've seen it all before. This is a waste of time. We tried it before and it didn't work. So I'll allow you to see who are, who are the people, the role models you want to have in your new organization. And once they've proved their commitment and their ability to, the, uh, to develop the newly merged company and demonstrated that they can drive the merger value, then that's when you publish your organization chart, populating the people with the people that have stayed, that are still with you and have demonstrated they're the right people. In the meantime, just tell people that they continue to report into whoever they are reporting to. Now, let's circle back, Paul, if you will, uh, to operational scalability and uh, the mindset. How do you know that you have matured to a certain point and what the next level should be? Well, in the short time, in the short term, um, you'll know you've reached the next level of maturity when you've identified the areas which need to change and tested the process changes to see if they produce the results and then either adopted, adapted, or abandoned the process changes. So that's when you know you've reached that level. You've, you've gone through this ad car process and what has to change. Things have to change. Here's why they have to change. What do we have to change? Let's go and try it out and see if it delivers the results. So you go through that whole uh, testing process. And at the end of that, you'll have, hopefully, a whole bunch of improved processes. And therefore, you've already reached a new level of maturity. So that's the short term. But longer term, that process of continually looking to improve your processes should never be in abandoned it should be an endless pursuit or as somebody once said to me and it stuck in my mind that you you know you've got to the right level when the when the operational people stop thinking i've got one job which is to follow the process and start thinking they've got two jobs 
to follow them process and to improve the process. What complexities and complications, Paul, can you expect in implementing such a program? Well, the biggest problem in, in, in change programs is always resistance to trying something new. <laughs> You're talking <laughs> about people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. People, people are people and you can either frustratingly hope they'll change or you can acknowledge people are people and then work within the parameters of people and uh, I prefer the latter so I don't expect people to change but um, <laughs> <laughs> so I mean um, people are going to say hey we tr- tried that before and it didn't work or yeah we know how to do that and and it's normal funny it's normal the larger companies that they don't see the need for external help to change they they say, I we know how to do this. Smaller companies are much more open about the need for help and expertise. Um, so and that's one of the reasons why I, I, I like focusing on smaller, medium-sized enterprises. But for the larger companies, you know, when they say, yeah, we know how to do this, I always say, well, if you could do it yourself, you would have already done it. If you know, if you're so smart and you can do this and, and you know how to do it, why haven't you done it? They normally don't have an answer for that, you know. With growth, Paul, uh, and of course with expansion growth, uh, there is growing pains always. Uh, you have to deal with growing pains. You will have to um, somehow adapt. And, and uh, basically that when you're reaching um, your current state, you've, you've gone through all of those. What are those pains and how should they be addressed uh, from this point onwards? Uh, because those are natural. Yeah, well... The problems of growth are the problems you've been living with for years as a smaller company. Uh, you're able to deal with them, to mask them, to band-aid them as a smaller company. But as a larger merged company, you can't do that anymore. You know, the same problems that you've lived with will destroy the promised value of the merger unless you address them. And you have to address these problems by the process I described earlier of engaging the organization and identifying what needs to be changed and how to make the change. What has your personal experience been throughout your career when it comes to breaking the barrier to the next level? Why is it so hard and uh, why is it so hard to scale up uh, a $1 million business annual revenue with $1 million to $2 million or even more? Well, it's, it's hard to scale up a $1 million company by organic growth alone. Um, when I started my own company in the 1990s, it was easier for a small company to get an audience with, um, you know, General Motors or Microsoft. I mean, I, you know, we, we, we were able to get meetings with these large organizations. It's much more difficult for a small startup company to do that now. Um and as I mentioned earlier, some companies like Moravia grew organically to 100 million. So it can be done, but it takes time. You know, you're talking, you know, 10, 15, 20 years maybe. So if you want to get there quicker, strategic acquisitions is a much quicker and better way to scale up. It's a great way to do it, but you have to do it right. And what is the role of management? Uh, let's talk about that. Should they retain a consultant to map things out for them? Do they need an analysis of the status quo to identify strengths, opportunities, challenges, and so on? Yeah, I think they do. And But I like to give customers a choice so I can give them a roadmap to change, Right. which, which would be like the merger readiness report. I can lead their teams through that change process to help them implement the plan that comes out of that. And I can help them make continual change part of their company culture. So I can do 
any or all of these things. Uh, typically, owners of SMEs, as I mentioned earlier, are more ready to acknowledge that they need some external external help and they're ready to pay for it. Well, do you think our industry requires a specific set of educational opportunities to address this knowledge gap? Um, how do we do that? Well, I think ambitious companies in our industry should adopt the culture of continual change, asking the organization for help and get them involved in making the change happen. I think if they do that, ambitious companies will grow better organically and when they acquire new companies, they'll merge them better as well. It's it's one thing to talk about internal capabilities and building those those skill sets um, within the organization, but when we're looking at the environment, uh, what is the role of associations, for example, that offer this type of knowledge, and broker firms, for that matter, who come in and then try to facilitate some of these changes to to be implemented? Well, as I understand it, broker firms uh, and mergers and acquisitions. Uh, brokers are there to identify owners who want to sell the company to the right buyer and uh, they introduce them to owners looking to buy their kind of company. But uh, the broker's job is done when the share purchase agreement is signed. They, the brokers have no responsibility for making the merger work or for delivering the promised value of the merger. And that's not a criticism of brokers. That's not their job. The brokers are very focused on, on getting companies, the right buyer with the right seller, and getting them to agree uh, a purchase. And where I've identified the niche is that since 85% of company mergers fail, then if they also hired somebody who knew how to make the merger work to improve the chances of that happening, then they you know that that's that's my opportunity in in that space the roi for for them if they're investing a little bit in terms of getting that external advice they're going to uh, avoid becoming part of that 85% statistics correct correct paul as we reached at the end of this conversation uh, please share some words of wisdom and advice to our listeners well um, advice to owners considering buying or selling a company is remember the hard work starts after the deal is done and you need to plan for the post-acquisition integration before you sign the contract. And uh, also you want to have someone like me to help you get it right. So I know how to make your merger be part of the 15% of company mergers which are successful. And um, another piece of wisdom I'd give to any married men listening is to give your wife a big hug and tell her how much you love her because she's had to put up with a lot. <laughs> That's great advice. With that, I want to thank you for sharing these great insights and, and your perspective on this important subject, Paul. I think we will need to continue this conversation into the future and in future episodes of this podcast. Um, I'm, I'm sure our colleagues who are in the process of M&A or want to learn about how to maintain value in their investment when an acquisition is actually implemented, I'm sure they found this conversation very helpful. So thank you for your time today. Thank you, Sultan. I hope everybody got something out of it. And thank you very much for taking the time to do this. Okay, it's time for my roundup of the interview and my analysis as to what has been discussed. Mergers and acquisitions are exciting in the sense that you are bringing two interested organizations together to capture and deliver more value. Whether the strategy is to acquire a company for its strategic accounts, the technology that it has developed, its people or operational processes, or to establish a strategic presence in a geographical location, 
Only a proper mindset and thought process can help both organizations maximize value. Operational scalability does not mean avoiding redundancies and talent churn. It just means being smart in terms of how to build on what you already have. Organizational culture, people's culture, and values play an important role. And as my friend Christoph Giovanni so eloquently put it in a previous episode, these values can make or break an M&A deal. Paul is onto something when he says that processes are not words on paper, people need to execute them and aligning processes across two organizations must be a well thought out strategy. There is no such thing as a perfect merger. Only the leadership can make it successful, which will allow for scaling up of operations. That's it for our episode today. I had a lot of fun talking to Paul about a subject that is not just important, but also of great interest to me and our industry. I'm sure you found a few things that you can take with you and apply to your business. We have reached the end of this show, but please subscribe to the Translation Company Talk podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite platform, and give us a five-star rating. That means a lot. Feel free to send me any comments or feedback, and I appreciate your ongoing interest and support for this podcast. Until next time. Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe and stay tuned for our next episode.